you've got your Bibles, we are in Philippians, second sermon in this series. And if you are able to stand, may you please stand for the reading of God's Word. From Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 to 8. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. Because from your partnership in the gospel, from this, day, this first day until now, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. This is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the truth of your word, which is like healing balm to our souls, which nourishes us, which strengthens us in uh, your life, continues to transform us by your Holy Spirit. Lord, we ask now that you would bless the preaching of your word, that you would soften our hearts through it, that you would cause us to grow in Christ and glorify you in our days. We pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. Now, perhaps you have, there have been times in your life where you have sunk into cycles of self-pity, of despair, and bitterness. And for whatever reason... The circumstances in your life don't pan out as you imagined they would. And this often causes us then to lose hope. And a loss of hope often leads to one of the first things you realize, tendency when one loses hope is that you stop praying. Because you think, well, you know, what's the point of praying if it looks like nobody's even answering me? Well, as we saw last week, the Paul, the author to, to this letter of the Philippians, he's in jail as he's writing this. Okay, he's in jail because he is preaching the gospel and that was outlawed in, in the Roman Empire. So he's in a Roman jail, which you must understand is not the, exactly the lap of luxury. In fact, he would have been constantly chained to the prison warden throughout his time there. So he, he would have been left with no privacy whatsoever. Obviously, the loss of all his freedoms, that's what the nature of being in jail is. And he would have been unsure of his fate. You know, is he going to get the death penalty? What is tomorrow going to bring? So he was in truly awful circumstances. But in the midst of these extreme trials, he pens this incredible letter to the Philippian church. 
And if you've read the letter, and what we're going to see over the next couple of weeks, and we see it this morning, is that, well, is there any poor me? You know, oh, look at me, I'm rotting away in jail, don't you feel sorry for me? Is there any of that? There's nothing, there's no hint of it. There's no hint of self-pity at all. And instead, quite the opposite, this letter abounds with joy and affection for the church. So what we want to look at this morning is, well, what's the reason for that? So what we're going to see here in this letter is that Paul finds his joy not in circumstances, but instead finds it in the hope that God will complete the work that he started in his life. And so it's this truth in which that he finds his assurance and his joy in Christ. So there are just two points this morning. Firstly, a joyful prayer, and secondly, the truth of that joy. So firstly, a joyful prayer. So despite Paul languishing in, in this Roman prison, really seeing he's not complaining, he's not um, moaning, um, he's not preoccupied with himself, as would be the tendency of most of us, I think. Quite the contrary, he's entirely focused on others. The thing is, the, the bent of our sinful hearts is that we tend to be turned in on ourselves. And I don't know about you, but the more time I spend obsessing about myself, the more depressed I get. So what we need instead is like Paul to lift up our eyes and to focus on others, to focus on God ultimately himself. Because you know what, he's, only, he's the only one who's able to lift us up out of that pit of despair. And we see this exactly in verse 3. This is what Paul does. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. What is he doing? Right at the beginning of this letter, he's lifting up his heart to God. And he's thanking him for his brothers and sisters in Philippi. We saw last week in Acts 16, we looked at the background to the establishment of the Philippian church. Well, Paul has fond memories of them. Okay, he was instrumental in planting the, the church. He saw firsthand the conversion of, of Lydia. He saw firsthand the conversion of, of the, the jailer. And he baptized them and their households. And so this little group would become the, the Philippian church. So Paul's expressing his gratefulness to God for them by praying for them here. And then we see this in, in verse 4, which says, Always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy. So a, a result of falling into deep self-pity is that I said before, we often give up on prayer. Because we think, well, it's, it's, it's pointless, it's not working. But it's especially at times like these that we should pray. Because what prayer does is it, it lifts us up out of ourselves and faces us Godward. And so we should pray like Paul does in the, in the midst of, of the, the, the pain and the trials. And, and, and like the psalmist does in Psalm 42, verse 5. 
beauty of the Psalms is that they're gritty and they're real and they cover the spectrum of all human emotions. I mean, consider Psalm 42, verse 5. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Okay, we've all been in those places. But it doesn't stop there. The text says, hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. So Paul lifts up his brothers and sisters in in Philippi always in every prayer. That's the text of of verse 4. Every prayer Paul is praying for his brothers and sisters. Now, obviously, it's completely legitimate to pray for our own needs when, when we pray. But here what we see is the importance of regularly praying for others as well. And specifically for the church, specifically for our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. How often do you pray for others? Or how often do you, do you ask other people about specific prayer requests that they they need okay how often do you pray for the health of, of our church that that the lord would continue to grow us continue to bring us new people for faithful gospel preaching um, for him growing a healthy and a life-giving church the gospel would take root in all of us that the spirit would continue to sanctify us and causing us to to walk in obedience to the lord and glorifying him. How often do you pray for the unity and the protection of, of our church? How often do you give thanks to the Lord for his generous provision for us in, in so many ways? So pray for the church, brothers and sisters. It's a, it's a good and right thing to do as we see from this text. So what we also see here in verse 4 is that even in the midst of Paul's trials, Paul Praise with joy. Okay, from verse 4. So the, the first reason we see this comes in the following verse, verse 5, which says, Because of your partnership in the gospel from this day until now. So what is Paul talking about here when he talks about the partnership of the gospel? Yeah, the Greek word that's used here is koinonia which also means participation or or fellowship. And specifically in this context, it actually refers to financial partnership. And we know this because the same words used later in Philippians chapter 4 regarding financial support. Um, Chapter 4, 10 to 20. And it's also used in this sense in Acts 2, 24. So Paul is grateful, okay, he's joyful. And one of the reasons is that because this young church is already supporting gospel ministry. This young church is already giving money to advance the gospel for the establishment of, of new churches, for helping the missionary efforts of Paul and, and the other apostles. And the reality is that churches, even back in 2,000 years ago, needed money to get going, to get planted, and to to continue to function. 
So generous financial giving to the church is part of how we worship Christ. It's one of the ways in which we worship. And it's something that Scripture calls every Christian to do. In, in the light of what God has done for us in Christ, one of the, 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 the small things that we are called to do, like we see in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, is to give back something financially to the Lord. And the reason for this is, well, it's, this is actually an indication of where your heart is. Okay, money and God are not disconnected in, in, in some way. The, 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 the money has a, a, a pull on all of our lives. And the reason, a reason why we ought to be generous with our finances towards the Lord, because it's a way in which, which to demonstrate that, well, this money actually no longer has a hold on my life. It's no longer an idol. It's no longer something I have to find my security in. I mean, this is why Jesus says in Matthew 6, 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. So are you you able to freely give money away for the sake of the kingdom, trusting that God actually will provide for you? Because it's a matter of faith. So a reason that Paul rejoices here is that he can see that the Philippian church is invested wholeheartedly in the gospel ministry. Okay, the proof is in the pudding. Their, their support is not just lip service for him. They're not saying, yeah, 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 Paul, we, we love you. We, we love what you're doing. But yeah, that, that's about it. Okay, they, they are literally putting their money where their mouth is and... They're supporting the church financially. They're supporting the, the, the ministry that Paul's involved in um, financially. And you see this in, in verse 7 as well, where it says that they are partakers. Okay, it's the same word, koinonia, partakers with him of grace. Okay, they're supporting him through thick and thin, through his imprisonment, and also as he continues to defend and preach the gospel. So it's because of this, their faithful support of him, This is one of the reasons why his affections are greatly stirred for the Philippians. And you see this in verse 8. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Now, the the Greek word there for affection, it it means literally is the guts or the the bowels, the heart. And it's the same word that is used to describe Jesus's affection for for the crowds when, when they followed him in, in Matthew 9 36 that Jesus sees these crowds following him and he realizes they're like a sheep without a shepherd and there's this all his his bowels his, his emotions just sort of churn in him and and he expresses this deep compassion for them and it's the same expression that's being used here for Paul's affection for the Philippians. And so it's this deep love and care that lies at the root of Paul's concern for them. And that his, his joyful prayers are for them, even though he's in the midst of these extreme trials. That brings us to our second and last point, the, the true source of, of joy from verse 6. 
so we've just seen that one of the reasons for Paul's joy in the midst of his, his, his hardships is that he's thankful to, to God for his fellow brothers and sisters in, in Philippi for their support. But there's a more fundamental reason for his enduring joy in the midst of these circumstances. And that reason is in verse 6. And this is what verse 6 says. And I'm sure of this. That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So what Paul is describing here is the doctrine that we call the perseverance of the saints. Now the Westminster Confession of Faith chapter 17 from paragraph 1 defines it like this. They whom God has accepted in his beloved, effectually called and sanctified by his spirit, can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere there into the end and be eternally saved. So what this is describing is the truth which scripture teaches that God will ensure by the power of the Holy Spirit that he will fully accomplish the work of salvation of every single one of his people. God doesn't start something he won't complete. Okay? God doesn't start something He won't complete. He doesn't do any half jobs. And this is what verse 6 is clearly telling us. If God started a good work in you, what's that good work? It's a work of your salvation. If he started that, he will make sure that he finishes it. He will make sure that you endure to the end where you'll be raised to eternal life with Christ on the last day. Or what it calls there, the day of Christ. You're not going to drop off the bus on the way there. Yeah, you won't lose your salvation because he guarantees to bring it to completion because he who promised is faithful. Now, maybe you're sitting here and you're thinking, well, yeah, this is not really what I'm used to hearing at church. And the sad truth is that, well, indeed, this biblical doctrine is not often taught in, in, in churches these days. And what you, you, you typically hear instead is that, yes, yeah, sure, you save by grace, but then you need to stay in by works. If you mess up big time, you fall into some kind of serious sin, what that means is that then you, you, you fall out of the state of grace and you lose your salvation and you ultimately go to hell. And what is taught is that genuinely regenerate, genuinely born again believers can willingly and deliberately reject the gospel and fall away from Christ. And the reason for this is that this view of salvation is typically rooted in our choosing of God instead of God choosing us. 
So if we are the ones who've chosen God, well, then you must understand the salvation's on our terms. And this has been the view of the Roman Catholic Church, actually, for centuries. Yeah, that you can fall out of the state of grace. That's what Rome teaches to this day. It's also the Arminian view of salvation, named after a Dutch theologian, Jacobus Arminius, in the 17th century. Okay, that essentially is very similar to the Roman Catholic view, that you, you can also fall away from your salvation. And it's this Arminian view, which is the majority view, frankly, today in most broad evangelical churches, especially in, in this part of the world. So what does the Bible really teach? How can Christi- people calling themselves Christians who all say they believe God's word have quite radically different ideas of something that's, I'd say it's pretty important. I mean, this is a gospel issue. This is not a, this is not a peripheral issue, okay? This is regarding our salvation. Well, the Bible teaches overall okay, that our salvation is rooted in a covenant. Okay, a covenant is, is, is a promise. It's a promise between the persons of the Trinity that, that was made before the foundation of the world to save us. And we call this the, the covenant of, of redemption. And you see this especially in places like Ephesians 1, but you can look at another place here, Romans 8.30, which says, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And what you see here is what we call the, the golden chain of salvation. That there's a continuous link here of our salvation. That was God the Father who called us, who predestined us for salvation before the creation of the world. Okay, he chose us. We, we didn't choose him. Okay, if God chooses you, there's good news. God doesn't let you go. Okay, having been chosen, we are justified then by the work of Christ, okay, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, who forgives us of our sins, who counts us, as righteous before him. And having been justified, then the Holy Spirit comes along and he, he seals us. The third person of the Trinity seals us. He sanctifies us. He, and he promises, when, if the Spirit seals us, what that is, it's a down payment of what's to come. That he will raise us up on the last day in glory with, with Christ. So you see... That you can't separate any of these actions of our triune God from each other. You can't separate God's election of us from his justification from us, of us to, our, to his glorification of us. They're all part of one chain. That God, the Trinity, works together to save us completely. And so what this means is that if we are justified in Christ now... We know that our sins are forgiven, we trusted in Christ, faith in Him. We are guaranteed that He will glorify us too. In other words, that we'll spend the rest of eternity with Him, the new creation. Now, that's what Jesus teaches. 
Example, John 6, 37 to 39 says that all that the Father gives me will come to me. Not maybe, some of them may come, some of them may won't. All of them will come. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. I mean, that's incredible. And then he carries on. John 10, 28. I give them eternal life. It's all about his church. And they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Now it's clear that all those whom the Father has chosen, whom he's elected for salvation... We receive Christ. We will be saved. We will, he will never cast any of us out. Nothing can, Satan can't snatch us from his hand. Demons can't sabotage the root there. Okay, instead, we are guaranteed eternal life that, that we will never perish, that we will never be lost. That nothing can jeopardize our salvation. Not our own stupidity, our own sin, or our own doubts. He will do it. I don't know about you, but I think this is incredible news. It's amazing. It's incredibly comforting. Because God promises to complete the work that he started in us. Now, let's just look at some implications of this teaching and maybe also just clarify some things for the sake of avoiding confusion. The first thing is that because God promises to complete the work that he started in us, it doesn't mean that we won't still continue to struggle with sin. We will still continue to struggle with sin. And in fact, as sad as it is, it's possible even for genuine believers to fall into all sorts of very grievous and high-handed sins, to grieve the Holy Spirit, to fall under God's displeasure. I mean, look no further than King David. Okay, he is a regenerate believer. And what did David do? Well, he committed adultery and he had the husband murdered in cold blood. Now, if you're Arminian or Roman Catholic, well, if you, if you want to be consistent to your theology, you're going to have to say, well, David lost his salvation because he, he, he messed up so badly and God could possibly not possibly forgive such heinous sins as that. Well, what does the Bible teach? Well, the Bible tells us that he was confronted with this sin, okay, because he had certainly hardened his heart. And this is, it's possible for genuine, regenerate believers to harden our hearts. That's what sin does, okay, but it doesn't mean we've lost our salvation, okay? God had to send the prophet Nathan and, and, and bring him to repentance, and 
He did. He repented. And that's a sign of a true believer that ultimately you can be lost in your sin and you know, muck and mire. But true believers are always brought to repentance and are forgiven and are restored. And so there's great comfort in this. There's comfort that we have from God's grace here that despite our mess ups and all of us mess up. There's not one of us who is going to get to heaven based on our own steam. Okay? Thank the Lord. Despite our mess-ups, God is faithful. And that's why 1 Peter 1, 23 declares that we've born, been born again, not of perishable seed. Okay? Not of seed that can die. But instead of imperishable seed, of seed that cannot die. We, so what this means is that we can't become unborn again. Okay, if we've been raised from death to life by the Holy Spirit, that new life, that seed of the Spirit will endure forever. Okay, it's, it's imperishable. Okay, the second thing we see here is that just because God promises to complete the work that he start, started in us doesn't mean that well, it doesn't give us license then to live how we please because we think, ah, you know, well, God's going to save me anyway. It doesn't matter how I live. If that's your attitude, well, it's, it's pretty much a sign you haven't really grasped the gospel. Because the evidence of the genuineness of our salvation in Christ is that empowered by the Holy Spirit, he transforms our desires to want to glorify him through his obedience, through our obedience to his word. Yes, that obedience is not going to be perfect. Okay, that's just the reality of uh, sin situation. But there will be a trajectory that God takes us on as he sanctifies us. That we will start to bear fruit of, of the spirit. That we would um, start to glorify him in our lives. The third thing that we see regarding this is, is often an objection that's raised to that this teaching which says, well, you know, but it's our lived experience that we, we, we know confessing Christians who have fallen away and who have rejected Christ. What about them? Well, what the scripture tells us regarding this situation is that, well, they were never regenerate in the first place. Okay, in fact, the Bible uses strong language that calls them hypocrites. They said they were called themselves Christians, but they actually were never really Christians. They could have been attending church for years. Okay, remember Romans 9 says, all, not all Israel is truly Israel. Okay, it's the same with, with, with the church. There's the, the wheat and, and the tares. Okay, that the wheat and the tares in this age grow together side by side. Yeah, the elect and the reprobates, the parable is saying, and then the last day God will come and separate the, 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 the wheat from, from the weeds. And so in 1 John 2.19 describes people like this, is they went out from us, as in from the church, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. Okay, so then true believers ultimately Continue. They persevere by the Spirit's power. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. Okay, the next thing that this 
shows is that, well, if it was left up to us to work out our salvation and our own strength, well, we always fail. Yeah, because we're sinful. None of us have the capacity to obey God's law completely. None of us have the capacity to, to, to get to heaven on our own steam. And if, like the Roman Catholic system and Arminian approach to things, is that you earn by grace, you've got to carry on by works, means salvation is dependent on you. Well, the, the implication of that then is that we'll always be insecure of where we are with the Lord. Okay, we always be in this place. Well, I don't know if I've done enough to make God pleased with me. I don't know if I've done enough good works. I, I don't really know if God accepts me, um, if he's pleased with me. I don't really know if I get to heaven. And, I mean, Rome teaches that overtly, that it teaches against assurance that you're only going to know if you get to heaven on, on the last day. And it's based in, 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 in all of this, that because it's salvation as we contribute to it, um, there's a chance that we may not get it. And so there's always this constant insecurity of where you are with the Lord. And the thing is, it's precisely because God has promised to complete the work that he started in us that we can have real assurance of our salvation. It's not if this false hope that we have in Christ, if we're in Christ now, the assurance that we have in our salvation is real. Because he will finish the work in us we can find immense comfort, immense hope and joy in Christ. Why? Because our salvation doesn't rest in our own works. Instead, it rests in the works of Christ. God's faithfulness. And in fact, God promises his people throughout the Bible, from the Old Testament to the New Testament, that he will never leave us nor forsake us okay, despite our wanderings and we wonder often despite our trials despite temptations despite doubts despite the struggles with sin and so this is exactly why romans 8 38 to 39 declares for i am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. God is faithful even when we are faithless. And if we in Christ now, we always have this hope that we know with certainty that despite life's up and downs, despite our own mess-ups, despite our own sin, you know what? He's faithfully still working on us by His Spirit. Okay, we may let go of God, but God never lets go of us if He chose us. He holds us. 
Hey, he's continuing to sanctify us, and one day he will raise us up in our new resurrection bodies on the last day to welcome us into the new creation where we will dwell forever with our God and we his own people. And you know what? It's this invincible hope that Paul had that sustained him in the darkest of times. It was this true source of his joy in the dark place so that he could encourage his beloved Philippian brothers and sisters as he does here. So bringing this all to a close, hey, are you still struggling with self-pity and hopelessness and despair? Well, brothers and sisters, hope in the Lord. Who is your salvation? Lift up your eyes to him who is faithful to save you to the uttermost. To God the Father who chose you before the creation of the world. God the Son who lived the perfect life on your behalf and died the death for sins that you deserved. Who's forgiven your sins. And to God the Holy Spirit who has sealed you and who's working in you right now. And has given you a down payment of himself that you will be raised to the eternal life on the last day. And so we see that salvation is entirely God's sovereign work. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And it's a gift of grace to be received by faith in Christ. So trust in Jesus Christ. In Hebrews 12, 2 calls the author and the finisher of our faith and know that he will finish the work that he started in you rest in this truth be renewed in the hope and joy that he's faithful to his promises and that he will save you to the uttermost amen